This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Many of you have likely heard of the statute of limitations, a period of time when an agency can investigate a potential crime and then bring forward charges. The Securities and Exchange Commission now working under a five-year time limit on its investigation thanks to a 2017 Supreme Court decision. The agency has had to dismiss at least one bribery case because of, as they see it, not having enough time to do the follow-through in that five-year window. Now the SEC would like to see that window of time extended, but that will take a move by Congress in order to change the law. To delve deeper into this, we are joined here in studio by David Zaring, Assistant Professor of Legal Studies and Business Ethics here at the Wharton School, and also joining us on the phone, Joshua Mitz, Associate Professor at the Columbia Law School, and also joining us is Urshka Velikonya, who's a professor at the Georgetown University Law School. David, great seeing you again. Thanks for stopping by. It's great to be here. Thank you. Urshka, Joshua, great to have you with us. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Orshka, I guess let's take people back for a second and and start with the original case that went in front of the Supreme Court and why the justices put a five-year window on this in the first place. A five-year window of statute of limitations was not that that big of a surprise, right? Usually, the statute of limitations run from the moment the, the violation occurs. In fact, there's actually two different statutes of limitations: one from discovery for private cases, and one from the time that the violation occurred. The time from discovery is usually shorter for fraud cases in private lawsuits; it's two years, and in five years from the time the violation initially occurred. And you know, going into the Kokesh decision, it wasn't that big of a surprise, at least to me, who've been looking at this thing, that the Supreme Court would come down and say, no, 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 the statute of limitations, the five-year period does start running from the moment the violation occurs, at least the last of the violations uh, occurs to the moment, and not from when the SEC discovers it. So then I guess uh, I will follow it up by saying the need to have that that statute of limitations Mm -hmm. in place. Why do you have it? And I say that because for a lot of people, you know, people, consumers across America that may uh, end up losing funds, losing investment funds, I would think they would be like, why do we have that limitation begin with? If we can get our money back six, seven or eight years, you know, down the road, that would be the path that we would want to follow. I mean, it's a balance that is struck. On the one hand, the five, we need to have we generally have some statute of limitations for crimes that are not murder. Murder generally has no statute of limitations. You can always prosecute murder, but for crimes that are seen as lesser violations, we usually do the statute of limitations for two reasons. One is evidence goes stale over time. The likelihood that some um, testimony is going to be accurate or less accurate increases as time passes. Second. The violators or the people who are going on about their lives, perhaps not even knowing that they broke the law, will have some assurance after a certain period of time that they're not going to get prosecuted by perhaps even a politically motivated government for something they did 20 years ago that they might not even have known, right? So those are the two generally offered explanations for why we have statute of limitations. But it's a balance that's struck, right? Because when there's a winner, in this case, a violator that goes uh, free, there's also a loser, the victim who doesn't cannot uh, recover their funds. Right. And part of this, David, is because in some of these cases that we're seeing now, just seeing what actually happened is not occurring until two to three, maybe even longer years down the road. And that really puts a, a, a crimp on the SEC from a time period of trying to have the, the recovery of those funds. 
Yeah, the uh, the um, the person who brought the suit, where the Supreme Court ultimately held that it's five years or nothing. Um, you know, he'd engaged in uh, allegedly securities fraud that uh, bilked investors over the course of. 15 years or so. Yeah. Um, and you, when you think of somebody like Bernard Madoff, um, his Ponzi scheme uh, was also uh, extremely long running. And um, so I think, you know, to some people, um, I agree with what Urshka said, uh, that uh, there are good reasons at some point to let sleeping dogs lie and move on. But some people would say for these, um, you know, really big bad people who have engaged in a really complicated and comprehensive fraud scheme over a number of years, wouldn't it be great if we could go back not just five years, but to the point where the fraud began and compensate everybody who lost money from the fraud throughout the duration of the scheme? And the, the Supreme Court's basically said, nope, you can't do that. It's it's five years, and that's as far back as we go. So, so Joshua, now the, the SEC wants to go before Congress. Jay Clayton, who's the chair of the SEC, has already met, uh, I believe, with at least one, maybe two uh, committees about this. Uh, does he have uh, does he have a, a landing space here for you know for uh, possibly getting a change to this uh, to this decision by the Supreme Court? Well, I think one of the reasons why this is so compelling and important for Congress to consider uh, is that. We can't just look at the statute of limitations in isolation. We have to remember that we're trading off the benefits of putting old you know, stories behind us. We have to trade that off against the resources that are made available to the Division of Enforcement. And the fact is that the Division of Enforcement has seen its budget more or less flatline for the last five, even ten years. They haven't been adding many new attorneys. And at the same time, you know, the complexity of financial fraud has just been exploding. So I think the case that Clayton is going to make to Congress, which is a compelling one, is that you can't have it both ways. There either needs to be more resources given to the, to, to the Division of Enforcement so that they can pursue these cases within the five-year limit, or we need a longer limit. And I think that's a very reasonable position to take, and it really puts the ball back in Congress's court to decide either pay up or change the law. Orshka? Yeah, I think that sounds right. One thing that I would want to sort of clarify here is that um, there's an earlier decision in, in 2013 called Gabelli versus SEC that already held something very similar to what Kokesh held. What, right, what that decision said, if you're going to bring a case SEC, you can't go about more than five years back. What Kokesh, this more recent decision handed down in 2017, clarified is that even when a portion of the violations occurred within the five-year window, you can't reach back farther than that five-year window. You're still limited to this five-year window. One thing I would add, though, is that um, this is a good story that I think Clayton should tell. But it's, it, it, how Kokesh impacts enforcement varies from the type of case uh, to a type of case. So, for example, as David mentioned earlier, the very long-lasting, very large Ponzi schemes tend to be the ones affected. Bernard Madoff would have been affected. Alan Stanford's scheme, likewise, would have been affected. Kokesh was a very long-running uh, Ponzi scheme. But the nickel and dime Ponzi schemes, right, the ones that, that you see some dude on Long Island defrauding his grandmother and other grandmothers like his, those tend to be caught relatively quickly. Also, violations that take place on the public market, such as insider trading and pump-and-dump schemes, those also, also tend to be detected quite quickly. Um, so the ones affected most significantly by the Kokesh decisions are FCPA cases, foreign bribery cases, uh, right? Um, 
as well as certain issuer disclosure cases tend to be the ones that are more likely to be affected. And, and more complicated, um, municipal offering schemes, when you have an established broker-dealer firm, a Wall Street firm, working with the municipality and defrauding them as part of that process. So the impact of the co-cash decision depend, varies quite, quite substantially for, uh, based on the type of case that the SEC is bringing. David? Yeah, um, uh, and in some ways you get this weird um, dynamic where it's, uh, if anything, the more sophisticated and sneakier of the, um, you know, wrongdoers who benefit most from the um, the, the strict five-year statute of limitations limit. Um, so I suspect, uh, as Josh says, that that's something the SEC is going to make clear to Congress as well, that this allows them to go after, um, you know, the headline-grabbing, um, yeah. high-profile, uh, uh, worst of the worst. You're, you're listening to Knowledge at Wharton here on Sirius XM 132 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Joined in studio by David Zaring of the Wharton School, on the phone with Ushka Velikonia of uh, the Georgetown University Law Center and Joshua Mitz of uh, Columbia Law School. Again, 844-942-7866, or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, at BizRadio132, or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. Now, now Joshua, in the... In the reporting on the on this move by the SEC, the term disgorgement is used in terms of the the finding of these funds. Can you take us and the listeners into that terminology and and how that may differ from restitution? Right. So the central issue in the Kokish case was whether disgorgement as a remedy that the SEC can use, just so everyone understands, disgorgement is a request that the SEC makes uh, to effectively claw back the proceeds or profits from an illicit scheme, from, from you know, whether it's a Ponzi scheme or, or just an ordinary fraud worked upon the market, uh, from the beneficiaries of that fraud. Uh, and the disgorgement remedy is, is, is a tricky one, was a tricky one for the courts to handle, to wrap their, their analytical minds, if you will, around. Because on the one hand, it feels a lot like compensation. It feels a lot like bringing investors back to the place where they were before the fraud took place. If that were the case, then the five-year statute of limitations would not apply because there's a longer statute of limitations for compensatory relief, that is, uh, uh, remedies that a court orders that are compensation, effectively, to, to an injured party. But what, the court, what the Supreme Court found in Kokesh is that disgorgement is actually more than just restitution. It's more than compensation. What it is is a kind of penalty, a form of punishment, punishment that, that the SEC employs to further broader economic and social policies. And that seemingly crazy, if you will, fine-grained legal distinction makes a big difference because we have a statute that prescribes a five-year statute of limitations on penalties. And the key thing to recognize is that this logic applies more broadly than disgorgement. It just happens to be that this disgorgement is the tool that the SEC uses, right. and a particularly effective one at that. Orshka? Yeah, I, agreed with, I, I agree with that thing, right? The, the questions since then have been raised. What other of the SEC's remedies or what penalties, if you will, that it seeks also fall within the same umbrella of the five-year statute of limitations? So one that's been challenged and so far in the lower courts has, has failed was whether injunctions that the SEC also seeks as part of its cases also fall within the five-year statute of limitations. As I said, the lower court has, has held no, an injunction is a prospective remedy, but if, say, a Supreme Court were held to you say yes, that too, it really means that the SEC's hands are tied 
in the cases that tend to last a very long time, as well as in the cases that take a long time to discover. The more complex by the more sophisticated parties that are better able to disguise and conceal the wrongdoing that's taking place, as opposed to the more uh, run-of-the-mill nickel-and-dime uh, misconduct that takes place. One thing that I would add here is also um, the nickel-and-dime cases, say the Ponzi, the little, little Ponzi schemes, um, insider trading, and pump-and-dump schemes are usually prosecuted by criminal uh, prosecutors as well. The criminal statute of limitations is longer. The mail and wire uh, fraud statute is uh, limitations is a 10-year statute of limitations. So at least in some of these smaller cases, there is a fallback criminal action that can also be prosecuted. In the more complex cases, where it's going to be more difficult for the government to prove that the people involved knew that what they were doing was wrong, they intended to violate the law, and they intended to defraud investors, in these more complex cases, there isn't an easy fallback in the criminal statute that the DOJ can then prosecute. Instead, it's, it's all or nothing on the SEC, and in many of these cases that are outside of the five-year statute of limitations, it mean, might mean that this, there is no prosecution and no deterrence and no, and, and no punishment. 844-942-7866, or if you'd like, send us a comment via Twitter, at BizRadio132, or my Twitter account, which is at DanLoney21. David Zaring for the Wharton School joining me in studio. Orshka Velikonia from Georgetown uh, University Law Center on the phone, as well as Joshua Mitz from Columbia Law School. I, I guess for a, a lot of people, uh, David, this is something that... For many people, they would like to see this go through. I guess the question is whether or not the the tact that Mr. Clayton is going to take here is something that will resonate with the lawmakers up on Capitol Hill. Yeah, it's um, it's it's really hard to forecast what Congress will do, especially with regard to the SEC. It's an agency that Congress likes to keep a close eye on, and there's lots of supervision. And that has meant in the past that um, that in addition to sort of big legislation which really changes the agency's responsibilities like the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform Act or yeah. Sarbanes-Oxley um, uh, that uh, comes along every so often. There's also uh, plenty of interstitial um, uh, legislation that happens. So every so often they'll um, you know, uh, give the SEC a new crowdfunding role or they'll uh, sort of lengthen the statute of limitations. Or, well, this is what they're asking for. But they'll, they'll modify the kinds of um, remedies that the SEC can seek in a way that the agency likes. Um, and that's kind of the sort of statutory fix that the agency is looking for here. Not some dramatic expansion of its powers, but uh, an extension of its disgorgement remedy. Um, and I'll say that... Um, Disgorgement has become very important to the agency. It's not clear whether all of this would be affected by the Kokesh decision uh, installing a a five-year statute of limitations. Uh But if I'm not mistaken, about half of the money that the agency gets from wrongdoers is disgorgement. Um, And so – more than um, half, but yes. Yeah, more right. So, yeah. Um, uh, so you know, we're talking about um, you know one of uh, the, the a significant sort of revenue base. Uh, the disgorgement is often given back to the um, to the victimized people. Right. Um, but uh, uh, but this is. Uh, a big deal to the agency as far as its penalties go. This isn't um, sort of the cherry on top of the Sunday, but rather often the monetary remedy that's composed of disgorgement is driving the total remedy that the agency gets when it goes after people. But but it is still, I mean, when you think about the the overall perspective of what the, the SEC is trying to do here, we know with obviously all the cases that we have kind of run through here, you know, in the last 15 minutes, how prevalent these instances of wrongdoing are 
in, in our culture right now, and even with some of the restrictions and regulations that have been put in place by the government, that a lot of these instances are still going on today. Oh, certainly. So, I mean, this is, this is a powerful argument for Clayton, which is the five-year statute of limitations ties our hands. We can't go after these bad guys who took money from grandmas, from their churches, from their investors, people who trusted them. So that's a powerful argument. A secondary argument is to add what both Josh and, uh, and David have said, is that the SEC does, in fact, distribute to injured investors a the bulk of the disgorgement that it collects from uh, the, the violators, right? So it collects about half of the disgorgement ordered, right? The rest of the money has been spent on um, gambling in cars and houses and God knows what else, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, but the, the money that is recovered, the bulk of that money is, in fact, returned to investors. So, yes, that failed as an argument in front of the Supreme Court. I would expect that to be a very strong argument in front of Congress mm-hmm. to say, look, this isn't money that goes into our budget. Budget. In fact, it either goes to Treasury, but more likely we really try to locate the, those who were injured by the misconduct and then return the funds to them. So I think I think that's something that I, I expect Clayton to do to a large extent. I, I would think, Joshua, it's not only a powerful argument to Congress, but it's also a powerful argument to Congress right now, considering the fact that you're talking about politicians that also have to be worrying about re-election at, at some point in the next couple of months. That, that's right. And I just want to add here here on the, on the statute of limitations more broadly, you know, I think that uh, even in other contexts, we've seen this in the Me Too movement, we've seen this with, uh, you know, with, with, with some of these cases going back 10, 15 years of allegations of sexual harassment or sexual assault, that statute of limitations sometimes pose a problem. And I think there's less patience today with the idea that we're going to sweep wrongdoing under the rug. And so one possibility is that this, this five-year limit hasn't really caught up with technological change that allows us to go back in time and be much more certain about what happened. You know, this isn't the, the 19th century. This isn't even the 20th century. We're, we're at a time where reconstruction of records is, is not a, you know, guessing game, right? We sort of know what happened. We just have to put the pieces together. So the, the political mood might be right. This might be the right time to consider extending statute, the statute of limitations more broadly. David, do you think that's a possibility? Um, yeah, like I said, it's hard to know what um, what Congress is going to do, but because um, uh, you know they always have the option of doing nothing, and uh, you never know why they didn't do anything. If they thought uh, you're, you're the SEC wants too much power and we'll never have peace, um, or or that they just uh, were distracted by other things, but. Um, uh, there's, uh, you know, a compelling case to be made that this is sort of, you know, a widow and orphan style remedy. We're helping out people who have been defrauded. We're going after defrauders. Um, and uh, uh, the people we're going after are sort of the worst of the worst. And so I, th- it's consistent with the sort of tough on crime message. This isn't crime. Mm-hmm. This is securities fraud. Yeah. Um, that, you know, often uh, often works with uh, legislators. Well, and, and obviously, it, you know, when you talk about the general public looking at something like this, David, they see they would see it also as potentially giving an advantage to the criminal uh, in terms of the money that they've already taken and potentially could be putting away in some location and not, you know, not going back to the people that actually belongs to. Yeah, this is not legal advice, but if you can structure if you can structure yeah. your fraud uh, so that it's uh, uh, so that it's undiscoverable for five years, then that's definitely the way to do it. Orshka. Orshka, go ahead. Yeah, so one thing that I would um, – I'm wondering out loud here is, 
So does it make sense for the SEC, while it's waiting and hoping the Congress does something, to try to be creative like it has been in the past when it first moved for the disgorgement remedy in the, in the, in the 1970s, right? There's no disgorgement in the statute. The SEC can only seek disgorgement in administrative proceedings. But if you look at the statute, it cannot seek disgorgement um, in court. It moved to seek disgorgement in the 1970s and say this is within the equitable power of the court. Courts have equitable powers as well as legal authority. And courts agreed and ordered disgorgement remedies. So I wonder if it makes sense for the SEC, if Congress doesn't listen, to start to fall back on, on that argument from the 1970s and move for restitution um, in, in cases that it brings and then reach farther back than just the five-year statute of limitations. Um, at the same time, that may perhaps undermines its argument that it really, really does need a longer statute of limitations. Joshua? Yeah, I think, I think that's right. And, and we should remember that, you know, many times the victims of these frauds are, you know, if we go back to Bernie Madoff, I mean, we're talking, you know, we're talking about individual investors, we're talking about charities, we're talking about, you know, real people and real organizations who are hurt by this kind of thing. And yeah. You know, at the end of the day, we have to ask ourselves, you know, whatever, whatever rationales for uh, theoretically that we can come up with for letting bygones be bygones, I mean, I do think there's a sense that uh, when real people are hurt, you know, we, we should all do what we can in our power to, to make things right. And I think that that's, that's what's driving this. That's what's driving the SEC here. And uh, uh, five years does come across. And a point that Ershka made, which I think is really important, is to, to compare this five-year limit with, with the limit in criminal cases, um, which, you know, justifiably is, a, is longer. But the question the question is, in some of these frauds that are so complex and that have such a uh, devastating effect, you know, maybe equalizing the, the limit makes sense because we want to remember here at the end of the day that, um, uh, you know, some of these aren't provable in a criminal case and what we're really trying to do is to make these injured investors whole. So there's similar rationales and you might think that similar time periods uh, should, should, should apply. There's also uh, some precedent for Congress doing this. In FERIA, they extended um, uh, the statute of limitations for fraud discovery against banks to 10 years. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so right. you got the criminal statute and you have some particular kinds of fraud because they were thought to be hard to discover. Sometimes it's hard for a bank to know whether it's being defrauded or for investigators to figure that out. Um, and so, um, so uh, uh, you know, the regulators uh, got uh, an extended statute of limitations for those kinds of cases. And in some ways, what the SEC would be asking for is uh, something similar here. But, Ershka, I, I, I would also think that there's, there's a little bit of a perception here that, uh, as we've kind of discussed here in the last few minutes, is the fact that, this is viewed as trying to regain funds lost by people. It's not necessarily looked at as uh, regaining funds lost by investment banks. I think a lot of people wouldn't have as much sympathy if that was the actual tact that was being taken here. It's actually trying to focus on the consumer who gets built out of you know however much amount of investment savings that they've lost because of, of this act. Absolutely, right? And, and when an investment bank loses money, usually they end up suing the other investment bank that defrauded them and recovering funds, funds that way to the extent that it is possible. So as a general matter, institutions tend to be somewhat more aggressive about pursuing legal remedies um, or just their economic strength to regain uh, lost way that individual investors, the mom and pops, may not be able to do um, as, as easily. Yeah, and I'd like to yep. add to that, you know, I think uh, we should remember that the amount of fraud that's going on, um, you know, it's, it's non-trivial. I mean, you've got, yeah. you know, as, as, as Ursula said, you have 
pump and dump schemes. We have a lot of fraud happening today in the crypto market. I mean, I don't know for those yes. who've been following, I mean, it's yeah. just, it's a wild west out there. The SEC has set this as a priority. We, you know, there's countless ordinary folks who are buying in some of these, you know, junk ICOs and other investment vehicles, thinking they're going to make money and seeing the value go to zero. So that that matters. Well, and the fact that we continue to see, you know. It, on the more consumer side, things like what happened with Wells Fargo, you know, the fact that things are going on with banks that people are using on a day to day basis. And we know that the industry was part of the reason why we, we had the recession. You know, I mean, you would think at some point these investment uh, entities, these people would, would understand this, but it, it continues to occur. And it, it continues to be, I think, a level of frustration for a lot of people, both in the general public, but also uh, in the in the finance sector as well, Joshua. I think that's right, and you know, in, in, in financial institutions in particular, because they're front, you know, front facing to consumers. Um, there's there's the sense of trust, you know, and, and David has written on this, and I think it's 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 an important point that, you know, particularly when you're talking about the financial sector, uh, the ramifications of folks losing confidence in, in in banking institutions and you know, in their in their uh, the financial sector more broadly, um, those are those are, those are quite far reaching, and we saw that in 2009, 2010, and it took a long time to climb out of that hole. So. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. The implications here are non-trivial. David? Yeah, I think that's right. Um, uh, the SEC has always had a, uh, set out its stall as a tough enforcer of the securities laws because um, that gives people confidence to invest in what have become incre- incredibly deep and uh, – uh, uh, and broadly reaching securities markets. And um, uh, so, you know um, – Getting uh, more time to investigate these complex frauds is um, uh, consistent with that overall message that, um, you know, we look out so that you can have the confidence that when you're investing in securities, you know that um, uh, at least you're getting told exactly what's going on. That kind of opens up, Orshka, the last question I wanted to ask you is the impact if Congress does make a move to extend this. Let's say it's 10 years you know, the impact of having that window, that extra that length of time, ends up being how significant in your mind? Um, it's somewhat significant in the large Ponzi scheme cases when the SEC can order this disgorgement. How much difference is it going to make in real life is, is I wonder. Um, in cases where the SEC targets large investment banks, it already has tolling agreements. Um, sometimes those tolling agreements are not broad enough, uh, but often they are broad enough in the SEC. In settled cases, the SEC is still going after uh, violations that happened more than five years um, since uh, the SEC brought the lawsuit and is settling those cases. But I do suspect that its ability to seek higher remedies, if it so chooses, will improve somewhat with uh, the improved statute. And and then not to uh, understate the fact that its morale likewise will improve if it finally wins a congressional battle after it has lost several times in the Supreme Court. Joshua, your thoughts? I think that's right. You know, it's, the SEC hasn't been doing so well in court lately, and you know, and the morale morale point is, is an important one. It's also it's also important for investor confidence more broadly. Mm-hmm. You know, I think there's a little bit of an aggressive posture right now being taken um, by the defense bar, the sense that we can keep challenging and challenging. Uh, you know, the Lucia case and others are good examples of this. And so I think we, uh, you know, the the. The, this is a time when the SEC, I think, is trying to establish, reassert itself, and establish its its, its role. And uh, this might be a good place to do it. David, final thoughts? 
Well, uh, one other implication of all this is the um, a question for uh, you know Brett Kavanaugh, um, the the nominee mm-hmm. for the Supreme Court. He said that um, because of Kokesh, he thinks that lifetime bans on um, people from the securities markets might no longer be good law, and so it'll be interesting to see. If uh, other judges agree with that, and if so, then the SEC could see this precedent, you know, reaching into other areas um, uh, that they maybe didn't expect. Great having you all with us, David. Great seeing you. Thank you for coming in. It's a pleasure. Thank you. Orshka, Joshua, great to have you with us on the phone today. Thank you both. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. David Zarin from here at the Wharton School, Orshka Velikonia from Georgetown Law, and Joshua Mitz from Columbia Law joining us here on the show. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.